Surprising transmission of Jesus's words. Um, this is a lecture, half lecture, half rant. Um, so what I want to look at, start with the rant side and then we'll get on to the lecture bit. Um, surprising spoilers. So we can look at three things which are surprisingly spoiling of your reading of uh, the Bible. One is question marks that they exist in the Bible. Uh, they don't actually, but there we are. Um, capital letters, uh, speech marks. So we're going to rant against those for a little while. Uh, and uh, hopefully your reading of scripture will never be the same again. And then uh, we look at three surprisingly old things, you, um, namely paragraphing, how old some of the paragraphing in the New Testament is, um, verse divisions, how old that is, and punctuation. So uh, let's start with the surprising uh, spoilers and beginning with the question mark. So Jesus's ministry, first century, invention of question marks, well, 5th century-ish uh, in Syriac manuscripts and Greek manuscripts from about the 8th century. Of course, they'd been invented by Aristarchus before that, but they weren't really used consistently. And then there's us. And you see already that question marks are a barrier between us and understanding Jesus. They came along later, and they came along as an idea to help. Because first, when a question mark was invented, and here it is to the left-hand side of the second line of the Syriac, see those two dots, that's the world's earliest known question mark, 5th century. Okay, um, uh, That particular one is the world's earliest known question mark. Um, and uh, that, that what we've got uh, here is uh, the something that was originally an aid. It was there, it was optional, it didn't have to be used. But think about how question marks get you into trouble. Jesus stood before the governor, Matthew 27, and the governor asked him, notice the word asked, are you the king of the Jews? <coughs> to which he replied, you have said so. <coughs> he didn't. He asked a question. There's a question mark there, Jesus. Can't you see the question mark? How can you say it? it's a statement? Now, one of the striking things about this is all four Gospels have the same six Greek words in a row for Pilate. Now, the four Gospels never do that, to have the four same six words in a row. All four of them, su, e, ho, basilus, ton, yodion. That's what they all have. Because those are his exact words. Pilate's exact words. Now, of course, they can be a question, and the three synoptic gospels use the verb ask before. So in terms of Pilate's intention, it is to ask a question. You're the king of the Jews. But of course, in God's sovereignty, the very pattern of words that Pilate has used testify to the truth. So Jesus says, you said so. Because he did. His actual words testified that Jesus was king. <laughs> Jesus is also ignoring Grice's principle of cooperation, but there we are. Now, imagine another English. I like, if, if I had to abolish between uppercase and lowercase, I'd abolish uppercase. Because lowercase is, uh, is on three registers, bits of line, and uppercase just on two. It's therefore easier to read uh, um, uh, uh, lowercase. It also looks cooler. And Pilate asked him, you are the king of the Jews. And he answered him, you have said so. If English were allowed to be written like that, and if only it could be, it would be okay. You'd get exactly what was going on, wouldn't you? 
you would see, I get it, there's a correlation between Jesus' reply and the utterance of Pilate. Or to give you another example, uh, here we have Luke 22, verse 70. Uh, they all said to him, uh, you therefore are the son of God. That's what they literally say. And Jesus said, you say that I am. Because they did. They said, you therefore are the son of God. <laughs> but of course, our translations turn it into a question. Or look at this little trouble. Jesus tells a parable. And it's a parable about the lost sheep, Luke 15. Now, what we've got in green is the bit that we mark as a question, and what we have in the yellow is what's marked as a statement. So as far as we're concerned, it goes like this. Jesus begins his story with a question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one um, that's lost until he finds it? And then oh, let's change into making statements. And so they then carry on the rest of the story as statement. But that doesn't make any sense. Surely either the whole lot is one question or we should have lots of questions going around. Now, this tricked me till the age of 49. I'm 52 now, okay? Because I was thinking about this and I was debating the question, well, what would the culture be? Would it have been, and actually New Testament Scholars commonly debate this question. Was it the culture that you would leave that? Now, um, uh, Kenneth Bailey, when uh, he reads this, he says, well, of course, it's presupposed that he leaves them uh, with, with a keeper or in a phone. That's, no one would just leave them like that. And I look back to sort of um, 1 Samuel 17 and think, actually, Big brother Eliab criticizes David and says, with whom have you left those sheep? Of course, we've been told earlier in the narrative, he left them with a keeper. Actually, the narrative felt it needed to tell you that bit of information because if he had just gone off, you wouldn't have known that. So actually, I don't buy the thing that uh, it, you can just imagine that there has to be a keeper behind us. But also, the question mark has tricked us, even experienced interpreters, because what the experienced interpreter tends to do once they've seen a question mark is isolate that one bit and ask themselves what person does that one thing when they should rather be asking what person does the whole thing including the party right that's the question because it seems once you say what person does the whole thing including the party and when Jesus puts it in the form who doesn't do it including the party, you sort of think, wow, that's quite a surprising way of asking it, because I would have thought, who does, Jesus? Um, or the next one, about the coin. I mean, we all get invited to lost coin parties, you know, finding parties all the time. Because the, the first bit, you know, about she lights a lamp, yeah, I get that, but the party, no. But what we see is that the use of the question mark splits up what was actually one entire story. Now, go back to an earlier manuscript. Here's a 9th century Greek thing. No question mark. Um, or the Book of Kells. It's wonderful. You've got no, paragraph, uh, no punctuation at all until you get the end of the paragraph. You, people in the past have managed. They somehow didn't die having Bibles with no paragraphs, with, with no punctuation. And here's a 10th century manuscript. Again, no question mark. Now, 
15th century, no question mark. But let's get some Wycliffe by uh, translation. This is 15th century and it's in Cambridge. And I just love the question mark here. I mean, I don't love the question mark, but it, I love it aesthetically. They see those walky legs on top of the sort of number seven? That's it. Isn't that cool? I mean, if we wrote questions like marks like that, I would have less problem with them. Okay, and this is where you can see already in the 15th century, it goes till he find it. Okay, so that question mark that we have in our modern English Bibles is quite an old question mark, right? It goes back at least to uh, the time of Wycliffe. But of course, question marks create false binaries. Now, we've heard a lot about non binary recently, but I want to tell you this there is some real non binary. That is, Question marks force, every, yeah, apart from commands and things like that, they force things into it's a statement or a question. You have to decide. It's either that or that. You can't have Pilate giving you an 18% question. You know, you're the king of the Jews. Maybe that's, that was 22%. You know, but you, you get the idea. You have to choose it one or the other. So the question mark has moved from being an optional helping device over time, evolution, to become a compulsory thing. And once they're compulsory, it's different. You know, like those laws that at first they're made to help people and then later they're, they're, they're binding you. You must, Americans who like freedom, you, you have this idea, you know, encroaching government programs, they start off helping you and then you're locked in, yeah? It's like that. That's what question marks are doing. Okay, capital letters. Capital letters. Um, the earliest manuscripts are not upper or lower case. Um, I mean, we, the way we learn uh, Greek is generally you have to double the number of letters you need to learn, letter shapes you learn, because we have to do upper and lower case. But of course, at the time in the New Testament, um, your, your, we generally say they're capitals, but the omegas aren't what we call capitals. They're more like Ws than, more, than the headphone ones. You know, so actually, it's not quite as, as simple as that. The N in a manuscript is more like our capital N, but it's not like the V. So yeah, that's a bit more capital. It just depends. But capitals aren't functioning originally with the way that we use them. Here are the Lindisfarne Gospels in Latin from around the year 700. And you can see how you've got... Um, the opening of Matthew's genealogy here, and you can maybe be able to see the word gener, okay? So it's all about um, uh, generation stuff. But I want you to see it's counting the number of generations in the genealogy. And if we just go down from the brightly colored capitals, uh, down two lines below, and you can probably see the name Abraham. Notice Abe does not have a capital A. Okay, because names don't get capital A's. And if you come down five lines on, uh, from there on the right, you can see Joseph. He doesn't have a capital I. By the way, dot, dots, you don't need dots on I's. But he doesn't have capital I's, just like Joseph. Because capital letters are not about personal names. They're about beginning capita. They're about beginning chapters, beginning verses, beginning sections. That's what they're about. So, look at... Tyndale's first complete edition, 1526, of John's Gospel. In the beginning, begin with a really big capital, and then you've got slightly uh, smaller capital, and then you go, the beginning was, the word, uh, was that word, and that word, because remember, word is neuter in Dutch and German, so of course you're going to use that to express the neuter, and that word was with God, lowercase, God, lowercase, 
until the second edition of William Tyndale, generally. I mean, it's not quite as simple as that because... <sighs> okay, we've got to just talk about type for a minute. Um, that, you know, you've, only, you've got metal type in your box or whatever you're keeping it that you're setting up onto the printing machine and like how many lowercase g's do you have and if you run out are you going to use an uppercase and that sort of thing. So sometimes uh, capitals aren't that predictable at that early stage. But uh, lowercase g, first edition, and generally uh, second edition. That. But notice that we've got a capital at the end of um, verse 1 to begin verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. That's verse 2. Verse 3, capital, all things. So the capitals begin the verses. Oh, and the verses are there before verse numbers. We'll come on to that. Uh, and that's what they're there for. They're not about how important this entity, even God, Jesus, Christ, all lowercase unless they're beginning a sentence. And that's the way it will be medieval Latin manuscripts, medieval Greek manuscripts. That's the way it is. So remember, our capitals have only been around for about 500 years since the Reformation, and they have some negative effects. We'll have a look at that. Because what do you do when you have this dialogue in John's Gospel between Jesus and the crowds um, about his father? He says, my witness is the capital F, Father, if you're in the um, NIV, RSV, um, uh, ESV uh, territory, uh, but NIV here then switches to the crowd saying, where is your lowercase father? Uh, you don't know me, know me or my uppercase father. So that's one option. You can just switch between the two. Or you say, uh, you can do what the RSV, I think the ESV does as well. Let's make it all uppercase. And then you make the crowd know too much. Now, one, of course, John's gospel is tough to translate because sometimes you've got two levels of meaning there. Often you've got two levels of meaning. And you've got to decide which level should the translator go for. <laughs> um, so that's tough. I'm sympathetic with translators sometimes involved in that sort of thing myself. Okay. Um, Matthew's Bible. Uh, here's uh, um, uh, interesting where, where I saw it um, come in. Because the Matthew's Bible is on the left there, 1537. And uh, Jesus is saying, lowercase, uh, ye neither know me nor yet my father, lowercase. And then it's the Geneva Bible, the Puritans who brought in that, and suddenly it introduces some new uh, problems. So then you have the problems of, well, is it a capital A angel or lowercase? Father, spirit, and so on. Uh, and it can make us think anachronistically about titles, because for us, titles are a big thing. Is it got a capital letter? It's a title, you know, really big. Now, remember, they don't have upper lowercase in Hebrew Bibles. People have been okay with that for years, but we somehow feel in our Greek New Testaments we have to have them, and even, you know, Tinder House puts them in. It just, like, didn't feel it could resist the pressure. Although we did lowercase Christ, but there we are. Um, now, what, one of the things that I'm concerned about is this, increasing distance from the original. We're actually putting an extra barrier in. I'm, I'm not sort of giving you a political program here about how we should print Bibles in the future. I am giving you a set of hermeneutical questions, I hope, to ask about what comes in front of you and how much that could be messing with your head. Okay, now let's go to speech marks. Speech marks at one level may seem quite old in Bibles. Here is Codex Vaticanus, Matthew chapter 2, and it's uh, quoting uh, uh, a bit of um, out of you shall come the one who will leave me so with Micah uh, uh, 5. 
Um, and what you can maybe see in the left-hand margin is some greater than signs. They're called diplair in modern parlance. Um, and <coughs> what we find is sometimes in New Testament manuscripts, they use for extensive, clear quotations from the Old Testament. They use this in the margin. They don't close off the quotation. It's not for any old dude speaking. Uh, it's, it, it, this is for specifically for quotations of the Old Testament. And of course, this is the way early in print, people used to quote, uh, do uh, um, quotations generally. You'd, you'd do left-hand margin um, reminding you you're still in a quotation, uh, and that's the way it would be done. But quotation marks were not in Bibles until, um, well, they sort of come along in uh, the 1760s, uh, and Harwood's literal uh, translation is one of the first, which um, says it's a new translation being an attempt to translate the sacred writings with the same freedom, spirit, and elegance with which other English translations from the Greek classics have lately been executed. And so what you can see there, as I've given you in the lower uh, right-hand corner, at uh, the end of John 3 and beginning of John 4, where it's continuing the quotation from John the Baptist, uh, he therefore that it embraces and obeys his doctrines will secure eternal life. That's a bit of a paraphrase, isn't it? But what's interesting there is they don't, it doesn't close off the quotation. You just open it, you don't need to close them. So that's an interesting thing. Now, how did they actually get into our translations today, not via that sort of outlier? It begins with Catholic Bibles. So in 1582, Catholic uh, New Testament, the Reims translation uh, comes out. And at that stage, uh, when they've got quotations from the Old Testament, they use italics. So here we are, we're in Matthew chapter 3, uh, and you may be able to see there, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, it's got a voice of one crying. So we're five lines down into chapter 3, and it's in italics, okay? That's what you do, just italics, just for Old Testament quotations. And still in 1750, it's the same. You've got there um, Matthew chapter 2 and 3, and hopefully you can see 2.15, out of Egypt I called my son. There's some italics there, 2.18, some italics, okay? But then what happened is they switched over their typography so that by 1812, and I haven't done all the uh, plots in between this, the Reims translation is now doing the same, but here we are, Matthew 2 and 3, they're using quotation marks instead of italics. Um, and so uh, what happens is uh, these come from quotations of the Old Testament to then be used for quotations for everything. Now, what damage do they do? Optional quotations, if they were culturally optional, fine. They're just an aid. But when they become compulsory, which is what happens in the 20th century, okay, King James versions don't have them, but we've seen them happen in almost all the other modern translations, and they started infecting Chinese and Japanese and uh, Arabic translations. So everyone feels they've got to have question marks. You've just got to get on board with the, with the colonial agenda of question marks. Uh, and uh, uh, what we see is they give readers an anachronistic view of quotations. Um, that they, they make us think in terms of the modern conventions of quotation, where you have to begin and end in a particular way, and if you miss out anything, you better tell anyone with a dot, 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 uh, or you better close it off and open it up and so on. Um, they tell you that the evangelists are liars, because these quotation marks are, get you to think of the evangelists as working within our cultural framework of truth. Because when we use quotations, we have to follow the rules. 
but those rules are rules that we have created since the time of the Gospels. So it may, how many of you read my little book, Can We Trust the Gospels? You may think it's a bit strange, but I, I just go on this little digression on the subject of quotation marks there, and you're like, what's he doing this in a book on Can We Trust the Gospels? As you feel it's really important that you understand that our conventions that we've only invented in the last few centuries shouldn't be imposed back onto something earlier. Scripture is true, but Scripture is not using our um, uh, conventions. So they then create inconsistencies and they force you to decide where various speeches end. Where does John the Baptist speech end in John 1? Where does Jesus' speech end in John 3? Where does John the Baptist speech end in John 3? Where does Paul's speech to Peter end in jo uh, uh, Galatians 2? And you have to make these choices and different translations make them different ways. Now in the left-hand column uh, we have where the John the Baptist speeches end. Every translation gets it wrong every translation or at least every translation there gets it different from the early church the early church thought that john the baptist had a lot more to say about jesus and that the law came through moses and grace and truth came through jesus christ and so on that was part of what john the baptist said but now we want john the baptist to have not too high a christology or anything too worked out in theological terms and there's a lovely convenience between um sort of con conservatives and developmentalist liberals where we want to have him have this simple speech we don't want him to say too much okay so that's that happens in that column the next column is Jesus's speech. Does Jesus say John 3.16 or not? And, you know, some have him say it and some don't. Uh, John the Baptist's speech, does he, he go all the way through uh, to uh, verse 36, the wrath of God abides on him or not? Uh, and where does um, the speech end in Galatians? Well, I've actually written on that subject and I think that right interpretation in every case is the longest possible speech, okay? Uh, that is, the, the gospel writers don't, They'll tell, tell you, indicate when a speech is ending. If they haven't indicated it's ending, it's not ending. But actually, I think that we've got some manuscript evidence to back that up. If you look at early manuscripts, they have these paragraph marks. Um, sometimes it's exesis going out into the margin with a paragraph. Um, and it's interesting, the um, earliest manuscript of John uh, has... Uh, no paragraph mark, uh, well, 2.23 it has one, and then nothing through to the end of two, um, 3.22, which is, which is where uh, Jesus' speech would read, uh, end on the wrong, long reading, and then another paragraph break at uh, the end of John the Baptist's speech at, on the long reading. Papyrus 75, uh, again, it's got uh, a paragraph mark there at 3.1, it's at 3.22. Vaticanus, however, I think is more interesting, and we're going to look at that, because of, as it's going through John 3, verses 2 and 7, they have line endings. All of the other ones uh, have spaces midline. So it's got loads and loads of these divisions early on in John 3. And then, kaboom, Jesus starts speaking in verse 9, and there's nothing till the end of verse 21. So it's the fact that you have loads of breaks early on in John 3 where there's back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus and then you get into pure unbroken uh, speech because it's telling you the whole lot comes from um, uh, Jesus and then it ends, verse 21, with a midline space. Uh, there's a different level of paragraphing, there's a wild debate at Tinder House about whether they're from the time of the original uh, scribe or from 50 years later and you know people go back and forth uh, and uh, I don't have an opinion on that. Other uh, evidence is a bit more complex, if you want to read it up it's all published in Charles E. Hill's Feshrift. Okay, now there's a bit of mission drift here. 
we've gone from optional quotation marks to help you to compulsory quotation marks to bind you down. Optional question marks um, to compulsory question marks. Optional capitals to compulsory capitals. Do you see the, what's happened? So all I want us to do, just as we think about this first uh, section, is, well, try and imagine a world without that. I'm not saying that just as we have readers' Bibles without the verse numbers now in, we should have things without question marks and capitals, but, well, maybe. It would be really interesting what it would do for our reading, what you'd see. And, of course, you're able to do printouts of all this. You, you, can, you can get um, uh, uh, print out the New Testament for yourself and, and read and see what it does. And I think it could be a really helpful exercise. And certainly what we've got to do is when we see these modern signs, which often do help us, let's face it, I, I'm not denying that, um, but questioning them can also be helpful. Okay, uh, so, and then of course they infect other languages. Here is a Papua New Guinean language, which I don't speak. Uh, but what's interesting about this is, well, you can see, obviously, Herod has got his nice, here in uh, Matthew 2, Herod's... Uh, got his uh, capital letters and uh, quotation marks have come in there because you really need uh, quotation marks and question marks. I mean, this is an amazing case of cultural imperialism. Now, I, I know, we, you know, talking about that sort of stuff sounds a bit, it, bit woke, doesn't it? And may, maybe not so befitting for the seminary, but really, genuinely, this is an issue. When you go into a brand new language which has no writing system at all, and you decide that you need to put into it all the bits that you have in your particular writing system, and it's got to have upper and lower case, and it's got to have that. There could be an argument for that, because they may want to uh, you know, be part of trading the world, and you know, English is a global language, and so this is going to help them. But just recognize what's going on here, because we're going from Hebrew, uh, which has got no capital lowercase, and Greek, which has no capital lowercase distinction, and we're suddenly saying, but you guys need to have that in your writing system. That, at least we ought to pause and ask about that. Okay, uh, now let's go on to the more positive, less rantish side of things. There are some wonderful things in the transmission of Jesus' words which are surprisingly old, and one of them is paragraphing. Um, one of the earliest manuscripts in the New Testament, could be the earliest, uh, is in Oxford, uh, and it's... Uh, it's interesting, the two earliest manuscripts of John are in Manchester and Oxford, and they're both of John 18. So Papyrus 52, the Rylands fragment, uh, second century, John 18. And here we have a fragment from Oxford, which is also uh, John 18. And where you've got those arrows, you actually have paragraph marks. Paragraph marks are often used uh, in New Testament manuscripts when you've got a change of speaker, change of scene. We think of paragraphs today as grouping-like ideas. That's what we do. That's not going to be working with a New Testament, uh, where often a new paragraph is a highlighting mechanism, not a change mechanism. It can be a change mechanism, but often it's a highlighting mechanism as well. So you've got to be uh, careful about that. But it's not true that all New Testament manuscripts have uh, um, paragraph marks. Um, uh, Papyrus uh, 45 uh, and uh, 46, so 45 is of um, the Gospels, 46 of, of, of Paul, don't. Uh, I suspect they've stripped them out. You can see some have them in, some have them out. Um, but uh, they're certainly an early thing. Uh, and here we have Papyrus 75, which is a beautiful manuscript of Luke and John. Uh, and it's uh, you know, usually dated to the third century. And uh, what we've got here is... Um, <coughs> The beginning of the parable of the lost um, uh, coin. Okay, so what we got is um, 
see where that uh, right-hand arrow is, there's a space. That's where you end the parable of the lost sheep and you go to the parable of the lost coin with a midline space. And then, because you don't want to waste writing material, go along through till you get to the next letter beginning a line and you put it a letter space or half a letter space out into the margin. That's those two things together mark the paragraph. And here you've got uh, the same happening as you transition from the uh, parable of the lost coin to the parable of the two sons. I know that the three of them are called one parable. Okay, I, I misspoke. What is interesting for me, though, and this is something we got wrong in our um, edition of the Greek New Testament, is the para parable or the story of the two sons. Because we think of it as divided into two sections, the 62% about the younger brother and the 38 about the older brother, because there seems to be a chorus. You get to the end of the 62% and the father says, this my son was dead and alive again, he was lost and is found. You get to the end of the very, the very end and it says, this your brother was dead and alive again, he's lost and is found. So you've got those two choruses, but as you're going through, you don't know that it's going to have two sections. You're just carried along. And what I realized is it's better in Papyrus 75, which is the earliest manuscript of this uh, parable, because it has no break between the younger and the older brother sections. Because orally, as Jesus tells the story, it just flows on. You don't know that you just got to the end of a section. You just move on. So... It, this, it seems to me, when I saw this, I thought that really captures the oral storytelling better than any of our subsequent paragraphing. So, <clears throat> um, I think that there may be paragraph marks which actually come from the autographs. Now, all this stuff about, you know, we've lost the originals. Remember, that's wrong. Don't let anyone ever tell you we've lost the original. Uh, we haven't lost the original lost the autographs, that's different. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we have the original, by the way. Everyone knows that, good. Um, ask me questions if you like. Um, now, let's go on to the uh, subject of, can we have a question mark from the autograph? Parable of the Sower, uh, Mark chapter four, verse three. Jesus says, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. Greek, akuete, for listen, behold, idu. Okay, now, of course, you've got those words you already know because you're in seminary, akuete, like acoustics, and idu, like video. There used to be a W or a V at the beginning, uh, but it was lost in Greek. Okay, now let's go to Codex Sinaiticus from the fourth century. What's so interesting about this is that here is akuete, listen, pause, then we have idu stuck out into the margin. Now, the way we tend to paragraph this today is you think you want to put the paragraph before Jesus' first word. Here we have the paragraph after Jesus' first word, which is so much more powerful. Jesus says, listen up, guys. Dramatic pause. Now let the mind's imagination visualize the soul going out. That's the paragraphing we've got here. And it's not just in Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, it's also in Codex Alexandrinus. You get to the end of a column, akuate. Now, blank line to the end of the column, get to the next column, big capital I. Idu! You see? So, two of our early manuscripts have it. One from 4th, one from the 5th century. Codex Bizi, the slightly random, weirdy text that there is in Cambridge. It 
is Greek on one page, Latin on the other page, sent out by sense lines. And it's a bit wild, like 8% longer in the book of Acts. And it's got wrong reading in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, where it says you just got angry rather than being merciful, which is like dumb uh, and stuff like that. So um, it's got a different genealogy, okay? But look at it. Akuate at the end of a line, it do at the next. So if we've got genetically diverse New Testament witnesses all having this same paragraph mark, isn't that an indication that they probably inherit it? And that inheritance means that it comes from the archetype of the tradition. And it's not the same that the archetype of the tradition is necessarily the same as the autograph written by the evangelist, but it's jolly close. And you could say there's a certain presumption that, you know, if you had to flip a coin, odds on it probably is. Now, someone might worry about how, what's this do to your doctrine of scripture? Are you saying that the paragraph marks are inspired? No, I'm not. God didn't breathe paragraph marks, um, but he breathed words. And scribes clearly felt free to change paragraph marks, I would say, more than words. And therefore, they're showing a certain level of difference. But what I am saying is this. Where the narrative has been, we've lost so much of the detail of the New Testament, we can actually push back with another, de- uh, another argument. It's not only that we have all of the words of the New Testament, we actually have more than we need. We've got some of the details of the layout of the New Testament as well. Um, here is Codex um, Vaticanus. Acuite goes to the end of a line. Idu is the next. Now, this is ambiguous evidence, but you can see between that there's actually that line, uh, with the third arrow I just showed there, this one. That is called a paragraphos, from which we get the word paragraph. Okay, may have been written by a hand shortly after this was written. And it's difficult to know what that refers to, because it could go back to, say, it's telling you we've just had a division nearby, or, you know, you're not quite sure, but I would say odds on, you interpret that as referring to the line ending before. So that's uh, four early manuscripts, but we have an exception. And this is a very hard one to read. It's in Paris, fifth century, and it's a palimpsest. So you've got one lot of writing on top of another lot of writing. So we're going to have to blow that up to get it. That's the word listen we're going to be looking for, and that's the word. uh, There you've got a capital K at the beginning, so it's showing you um, they do have paragraphs, but oh, here's Idu, and it's not got a capital at the beginning. Therefore, they're not following the system. But zoom in, and maybe you can just see what it says. It does not say Akuate. It says Akusate. Now, friends, what's the difference between Akuate and Akusate? You know, one's a present, one's an heiress. And that makes all of the difference, doesn't it? Anyway, you who like verbal aspect, you can consider that. Um, you get the text wrong. And, yeah, you get the paragraphing wrong with it. Now, <clears throat> 9th century manuscript, this is a minuscule. And what you can see is this is the transitional fossil, okay? So, uh, slightly different, dif- difficult to read, different text. So, here we've got, just before Akuate, we've got a space before listen up. Then you've got a space after listen up. So, this is a transitional thing where you, uh, you've actually got two spaces there. And then once you've got the two spaces, you can delete the second space, and then you're where we are today with just the space before the first one. Okay. Um, Now, you have a manuscript here in your own seminary. Somewhere near you, hidden in a location, there is a Greek manuscript, uh, 2358. And I looked this up just before the lecture, and it was so exciting to see uh, uh, Akuate. So let's go back. Yeah, there. Now, 
I don't know how many of you can read this. Is my mouse showing up? No, it is. There's alpha. That's alpha. That's kappa. This is omicron upsilon. You write it like a bag. Okay, that's the two together, omicron upsilon. This is epsilon uh, tau epsilon. Okay, that's the way you do it. So it has a cuater at the end of a line and a bit of punctuation. But the sad news is the image of the next page is not online. So I wasn't able to tell you how the story ends. But it could be, it could be that in your very seminary, sitting near you, you have something that has a remnant of autographic paragraphing. Think about that. Now, let's do another language. Let's go into Latin for a bit. Here are the Lindisfarne Gospels. Lindisfarne Gospels, Audite. I know they all, all the letters look the same. They're all like blobby, right? Audite, listen, have an audition. Then we have Ecce, behold. Big letter, beginning new paragraph. So this is the interesting thing. That paragraph, which for us is weird, has not only made it across various Greek manuscripts, it's actually made a jump into another language. It's made a jump into Latin, where it hangs out in other Latin manuscripts, like this one. The book of Duro, 7th century. Ecce is where you begin. Behold, that's where you begin the story. Audite just closes off the last paragraph. Or the book of Kelms. Audite, isn't that a lovely big capital A for Audite? And there's, uh, oh, and, and then, oh, that, Book of Kells gets it wrong, doesn't it? Book of Kells has said, we begin the paragraph there with the A. Um, and this is a transitional form in Latin, where you've got the Audite. I know it looks like Dudite, but it actually is an Audite, believe it or not. Uh, there on the left, and then an Eke. And you can see it, that that's the way it works. Now, what's really exciting is looking at an Anglo-Saxon manuscript. This Anglo-Saxon manuscript, unfortunately, they don't use the word behold. It's really sad when people miss out the word behold. Um, but see where that cross is and go to the word just to the left of that. And it's gehurath. Here. Here. And then out went. And there's the word utilde. He went out. The sir went out. So, so you actually have your pause after listen up. Now, uh, that's an exciting thing. And when we did our Greek New Testament, we had the paragraph mark here in the right place. But the thing we noticed, actually started noticing various things after it came out, is just realizing, wow, the whole story ends with another akuo. And later in the chapter four of, of, of Mark, we have another one. And so you actually realize this is a feature which seems to make a lot of sense. Jesus is calling people to listen. It really emphasizes that. He calls people to listen before the parable. Then he calls them to listen at the end of the parable. They're the one who has ears to hear, hear. Okay, now how are we doing on time? Okay, surprisingly old verse divisions. Don't let anyone tell you that the verse divisions come from 1551 when they were put in by Robert Stephanus in his New Testament while he was on horseback. Yes, Stephanus did produce a Greek New Testament in 1551. And yes, it is the first one to have the verse numbers roughly as we have them today. And there it is. And you can see why he has it because he's got two columns of Latin either side and he's got his Greek in the middle and he wants to align them all. And so you need to have a numbering system to do that. And as we zoom in, you can see uh, there it is. And how did he produce them? Uh, well, this is what he says in his Latin preface. He says, um, I've used these verses, but I want you to actually go below that red arrow to where you might be able to see Graeca Latina. Okay? And that's where he says, I have followed, uh, word secuti, following here, 
the exemplaria, the Greek and Latin exemplaria of the New Testament. I didn't make these verses up. I was following manuscripts. And that's the key thing. Um, because that's what he did. Well, uh, how did he make them? Well, uh, his son said uh, he was going from Lutetia, which is Paris, to Le Leiden, uh, uh, so, which is Lyon. And uh, he uh, did it on uh, inter-equitandum. So he did that like on horseback. You think, like, really, on horseback? Any decent scholar works on horseback. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do Scholars look for every opportunity they have to work. If you're going to be on, on the back of a horse for a day or two, of course you read a book, don't you? This is why Erasmus here says, he's writing Thomas More, he says, oh yes, I did this while I was sitting on the horse. Or as he says in a letter to Morellinus, I was sitting supercellam, I was sitting on the, um, what do they call it? Saddle, that's the word. Um, now there are numbered verses, of course, earlier, uh, and uh, here we have 1528. They're different uh, numbers from the ones we've got. Uh, but we've already looked a bit at the opening of uh, John in the William Tyndale Bible. And what's interesting to me is there's a basic correlation between his, par his capitals and our verses today. There is a non-correlation. Can you see between verse 4 and 5 here? You can see a capital A on and life was the light. Um, so it's not... You know, in one sense, he divides the first five verses, as we call them, into six. But otherwise, things follow uh, that system. But it goes back even earlier. You see, I think for the first eight verses of John 3, the verse system is already there in the fourth century. Do you hear that fourth, fourth century? Okay, um, because when we look at um, the uh, Codex Vaticanus, we actually have something, either a line break or a spatial punctuation for those first eight verses. And what has not been done, my friends, is the research to document for every book how the verse division system evolved. There's just loads and loads of data out there to go and gather, go to the mountains, gather the data to find out how it works because it has an effect on us and it's not all the verse divisions are bad. Okay, um, so... Early punctuation, here I'm going to end. <clears throat> Not much to say about this, except it's beautiful when you're reading an early manuscript, like the earliest manuscript we have of Luke 15. And here we have the parable of the lost sheep. And look at all that punctuation we've got. It's a, it's a, it's a raised dot that we've got. So, and uh, what man among you having a hundred sheep and losing out of them one punctuates? does not leave the 99, 99 actually spelt as a figure, that's pretty cool, uh, in the desert and goes uh, um, after the lost one until he finds it, punctuate. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing, punctuate. And for me, I'm not saying this is original punctuation, although it strikes me that there must have been some, but wow, this is early. This is third century. This is giving you early rhythm. And it strikes me that as Protestants, we should be very interested in things that are early, early interpretation. It's not that we hold early interpretation as authoritative. We don't hold tradition like that. But we want to use every clue that we can to get to the apostles' meaning. 
And if those guys were closer to us, we want to say, what do you have to say to us? And so I have a certain awe as I see these punctuation marks. And I think I would just love to see an army of evangelicals going in and taking this stuff seriously and saying, what can we learn from these early folk? It's not they always got it right, but there's a lot to learn. So that's what I have to share with you. Thank you so much for listening so carefully. And hopefully there are some questions. And do please subscribe to the magazine that comes out from Tinder House. That's their uh, URL.